This morning's reading is from Isaiah 49, verses 5 to 16. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favour, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Um, I'd love you to have Isaiah 49 on your lap. Uh, when you go up to London, you can spot them a mile away. They're the people who don't know where they're going. They have the map. They still have physical maps that you can get your hands on, and they kind of get disorientated when they leave the station, or where they leave the tube, or where they get off the bus. They turn the map the wrong way round, and then they orient themselves, and they begin to find where they're going. Um, you also see other people who are glued to their phones or perhaps have an earpiece in and Google is helping them navigate where they're trying to get to. Because when you're in amidst the big buildings, whether it be the cheesy grater or the salt shaker or the big flywheel, um, whatever it may be in the centre of town, it's hard to get your bearings. That's why I prefer to go up to Epsom Downs. When you go up to Epsom Downs, it's big sky. There's very few interruptions to your view, and you can see how London works. You can see clearly the city, you see the financial hub, but you can quickly then go with your mind to the West End, and you can go to Theatre District, and you can see Wembley Arch. We're getting further out to the west now. You can see the planes landing and taking off at Heathrow. You can go to the east and see Canary Wharf and what lies beyond on a clear day. Sometimes you need the big view. Sometimes it's hard to get your bearings in perspective. 
Isaiah is all about the big view. And Isaiah is all about revealing to us this shadowy, paradoxical, mysterious figure who's called the servant. The servant. Can we just draw a curtain or two and that become a little bit clearer? Thank you. The servant. The servant of the Lord. We began looking at the identity of this person from this old book that's 800 years in ink before the birth of Jesus Christ, and yet it appears to point directly to him. We looked at Isaiah 49, 42 rather, 49 is our passage this morning, and let me just show you the ups and downs view that we find in verses 1 to 13. We begin our reading at verse 5, but verses 1 to 13 is not in the centre of London. It's not about detail. It's about bigness and grandeur and scope and panorama and greatness and majesty of God's plans. It's about salvation. Three words. It's about salvation that's going to come soon to the people. It's also going to come eventually to the people. But it's also going to become ultimately to the people. Those three words are a descriptor of verses 1 to 13. What do I mean? Look at verse 5. And look at verse 8. God is going to do something. Verse 5 and verse 8. God is going to do something to bring the Jews back. He's going to do something to bring Israel back. To restore Israel to what they knew before, but do something even greater in verses 5 to 8. Here's an example from verse 6. He goes beyond just ethnic Israel in this one verse. It's very interesting. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God is saying you need to get on Epsom Downs, so to speak, to understand what I'm going to do in all of history. I've set my favour on a people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, but I'm going to add to them. I'm going to grow your expectations of what I'm going to do. Look down to verse 12. Through the servant, God is going to do something remarkable. There's going to be people coming from the north and the south and the west and from the east down in Aswan in the south. What's God saying in shorthand? I'm going to give you a big wide-angled lens of what I'm going to do of all of human history. I'm going to create a multi-ethnic, a multi-age, a multi-nationalistic people. And they're going to be my special people. I'm going to do it. And because it's so great and wonderful, verse 13, it says, this is so great, creation can't keep in the joy. Mountains are going to shout out. They're going to rejoice. How is that possible? No idea. But it's true. They are shouting and screaming and praising God, adoring him, because they see that what God has promised is going to come true. It's real. And it's saying all suffering, all decay, all disease, even death, it's come to an end. It's put away with. The mountains are rejoicing at the future promises of God and the new creation, where this multi-ethnic people of God that God has brought together, they're going to enjoy him forever. That's where all of history is heading. We need to get on Epsom Downs to see this, or we get lost in the detail. Salvation is coming soon. Isaiah wants us to hear that. It's coming eventually, and it's coming ultimately as well. But then you get down to verse 13. 
And verse 13 and 14 and through to 16, there's a question that comes that is very practical and real and pastoral. And I want to focus on verses 14 to 16 and just kind of uh, remain there for the remainder of our time. Because with this big wide-angled lens view of history, of where it's heading, there is a fearful, heartfelt, sceptical question that we can read for ourselves down in verse 14. It's profound. It says, uh, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now Zion, this little hill in Jerusalem, was where the temple was, where God's glory was manifest on earth. It was a place of uh, security and identity for the Jewish people. It was a way of identifying that they were God's own people because God dwelt among them in the Zion, the holy hill of God. And so this is saying, I'm speaking, this is Israel personified. This is Israel speaking to God, expressing something that a fear and a cry of the human heart. Verse 14, I know you've made these huge promises, but what about now? Verse 14. What about now? I know where history is heading because you've told me, but what about now? What about the gap from the promises that you've shared with us to how I feel in everyday life? It is point number one, a very painful question. A very painful question that God doesn't say, just suck it up and move on. He pauses in his speech through the quill of Isaiah and he says, I want to address this. It's something that we're all going to face, understanding something of the bigness of God's plans and purposes, but we will sometimes feel that God has left us. And I want us to look at that from verses 14 to 16. Number one, a very painful question. A painful question. Look at what he says, verse 14. Zion, God's people, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord God has forgotten me. I feel forsaken, I feel forgotten, I feel overlooked. I feel discouraged. I feel that the promises that you have shared with me are just far away from my everyday experience. What about now? I'm in the mess and dirt and trenches of life and those promises feel very, very remote, if real at all. How do I deal with now? I'm surrounded by tragedy. I'm surrounded by abandonment. I'm surrounded by your far awayness because these words are written to a people in exile at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And God's promises, they just seem like words for their present experience. There's no assurance in their everyday life that God loves them. These promises feel far away. Notice what verse 14 does not say. It does not say, we don't believe what you said. It does not say we don't believe in God. It does not say these things are never going to happen, this rescue plan, this salvation that's soon and ultimately and eventually. It doesn't say that. There's no uh, evidence that these people don't believe what God says. It just doesn't feel like it. There's a gap between what they are experiencing and the promises that they've set their hope on. It's hard when that happens. When you say something in your head, I believe that God loves me. I believe in the promises that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that one day tears will be wiped away, that death will never be my final problem anymore. 
but right now I'm surrounded by people who die. Right now my life is not going very well. Life, right now life is hard. And I found a book on my bookcase that uh, pointed me to this issue of the gap between what we experience and the truth that we can hold in our hearts and in our minds. It's by a man called Richard Lovelace. In one of his books, he expresses this very helpfully. He says it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith that we are Christians, that we're children of God. But there's plenty of evidence in our lives against it. Lots of things in our experiences, the way we live, the things that happen to us on the outside, that it's not true. There's lots of evidence that says, although we believe that God is at work in our life, we believe that Jesus has rescued us, there's lots of things on the inside and on the outside that say it isn't so. And when that happens, we are tempted to go elsewhere and steal love and self-acceptance from other places. Very helpful way of putting it. When God feels far away, the great temptation in the human heart is to go elsewhere and steal affection and love and value from somewhere else. And that is something of what has been spoken of in verse 14. In our hearts, we can say, I don't know if God loves me anymore. I don't know if God remembers me anymore. There's lots of evidence inside in my heart of a reason why God should not remember me, why God should forsake me, why God should forget me. And there's lots of unanswered prayers that I've been praying for decades, for months, for weeks, and God has not come through for me. My life is full of terrible disappointments, of what might have been, of empty chairs of people that could have been my life partner. And then Richard Lovelace says, friends, you, you should not and cannot live in that gap. You have to resolve it in your heart and in your mind. You have to wrestle and recognize that God has set his affection upon you and you have to find a way of getting that life-transforming love in the power of his spirit, drilling it down into the depths of your heart or you will be crushed and disheartened by the experiences of life. You will start to steal love and affection from elsewhere. You will choose bad relationships for someone, anyone to affirm you. You will work really, really hard because you want to be accepted and you will think that money is the answer. You'll be tempted to overwork or underwork if you want to be lazy and discouraged. All kinds of stuff will take the place of God in your life because you feel that there's a gap between what you know and what you're experiencing. And when things are going well, this isn't a problem because surely God is for me because I've just got a career boost. Surely God is for me because I've just got a new house. Surely God is for me. But when things go south, so to speak, when things get hard, when trouble comes into your life, this becomes a huge problem. And that's what verse 14 is about. You've made these huge promises from the ups and downs. I can see everything you're going to do in human history, but my experience is very different. And my life sucks. It hurts. My future is dark. And so what does God do? How does God deal with this? Does he say, man up? Does he say, lady up or woman up? Does he say, just deal with it? Does he say, just go on a holiday? Rest will cure it. Now what he does is something very, very interesting. To this painful question, verse 15 and 16, he begins to provide an answer. Number two, he provides an answer to the question. 
Look at what he says. It's not about self-help. It's not about devotional reading of the Bible. This is meaty theology that he says, if you want to understand, if you want to get rid of this gap between the promises that I have made, the future that is secure, and your present experience that is dark, you need to get some meat. And here's some great meaty theology and understanding and teaching about God. Look at verse 15, this wonderful metaphor. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The God of the universe is like a nursing mother, a mom. You have to get used to that, mom, spelled incorrectly. Try that, see how long you go before you give up. M-O-M, apparently. The God of the universe is like a nursing mother in some ways, but not in other ways. Let's think about that. Think about a nursing mum. How has God made it so that a mum is intimately linked to the babe at her breast or at the bottle? First of all, there's a physical thing. There are chemicals that are released when uh, a baby is born and it marvellously and miraculously knits this mum, who is an independent person, to this babe who now requires everything from the person that gave her life. There's a physical connection. It's not just that, it's emotional. There's an emotional connection from mother to child. There's more chemicals so that there's delight and joy and a smile. How am I going to do this as a first-time mum? Because God has made you that when you can rejoice when you are changing a nappy at four in the morning, I'm told I'm asleep, but I'm told that happens. You can rejoice when you get a piece of artwork. And let's be honest, it doesn't look like much, but you say, that's great. And it gets center stage on your fridge. You can rejoice because God has made your heart physically and emotionally connected to this little mite, even as they grow in their demands and challenges. But then there's a third element. Think about friendship. Think about friendship. When you have friends with someone of the opposite sex or same sex, there's give and take. Would you come and give me a lift? I know it's late. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. Then you think, you owe me one. Uh, Or think if you're married, there's lots of give and take in a marriage relationship as well. But here this is saying, when a mum is tied physically and emotionally to their child, it's not just that. There is something in a mother-child relationship where you will do anything for them. There is give and take. The mum does all the giving, the child does all the taking. But it's different from a friendship and it's different from a marriage. You will do anything for this little mite. Even when they grow up, the relationship is still very, very strong. It changes, but it's still so strong. And then God says, verse 15, I want you to compare me to that, to a mother's love. And verse 15 is the punch. Though she may forget. In Hebrew it says, she will forget. Though she will forget, I will not. This amazing connection that God has made, physically, emotionally, this willingness to lay your life down for this child that gives you nothing initially, and you have to give everything. Ruins all your, ruins your figure, ruins your flexibility, ruins everything. And then God says, though she may forget, she will forget, but I will not. I'm like a nursing mother, but I'm different. I am both like and unlike a mother. But with all the physical and emotional connections, some mums will be difficult and bad mums. 
And we need to recognise that some mums will let you down. This metaphor for some people will be very problematic. The love that you have experienced from your mum is not great. It's not indestructible. It's been heartbreaking for you as you reflect on it. But God says, no matter what your experience is of an earthly mum, I am like them, but I'm very different from them. I'm greater. I'm better. Their love may be conditional. My love for you is unconditional. It's indestructible. You see, your mother's love, no matter how dimly it shadowed God's love for you, no matter how dimly, my love for you is greater than that. Everything about my glory, everything about my promise making and keeping, everything about my faithfulness is directed towards what is best for you in all of history. It's right and appropriate for me to drive you out of the garden. It's right for me to come and rescue you by the blood of my dear son. Everything in my nature and the character of God is driven towards us. He doesn't need us. But purely for his own glory's sake, he pursues us as wayward children. And that's just from verse 15. But notice verse 16. Your walls are ever before me. Your walls are ever before me. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem now. It's a metonymy, fancy word. It's a, it's a similar word for the same thing. The same word that means two different things. It's the people of God and it's the city of God. And God's love is saying, I am for you. I'm always thinking about you. You are ever before me. I never forget you. I'm fixed on you. I'm more fixed on you than your earthly mother is fixed on a child. You are ever before me. And all of this is dealing with the problem of verse 14. I think that you've forgotten me. I think that you've forsaken me. If you knew, friends, the love of this magnitude from the person of this magnitude, God, how would it change you? You wouldn't have to go stealing love from anywhere else, would you? You'd have a career in its right place. You'd have relationships in its right proportion. If you knew the love that was so great described in these verses, from the person that's so great that's revealed in these verses, it would change your heart. There'd be no gap. But God stops what he was saying to address the question of verse 14, and that if we were to see this, there would be a fountain of joy, wouldn't there? That God loves us. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because Isaiah 49 tells me so, and so does the rest of the Bible. It's this painful question of verse 14 that God does not say, I'll suck it up. He says, you need to get a grasp of the richness of my character. I'm like an earthly mother, but I'm greater. And you are always before me. That's a great answer, verse 15, because it's in the Bible. But then point three, there's uh, an even greater answer. It's a cure. This question and an answer, but then there's a cure, a cure for the pain. Look at verse 16 with me, please. The metaphor changes now from motherhood to what looks like a tattoo parlour. What do I mean? See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. On the palms of my hand. This uh, looks like another lovely picture that we can get our teeth into and get our hands on are about devotion. It's talking about God's love and affection for us. But it's not really about devotion. What do I mean? If you went back to the uh, ancient Near East, it was common practice for a master 
to have their name tattooed on the person of their servant, like an ID bracelet. They're mine. So not if you got lost, but so that you would never forget whose property you were. But what would never, ever, ever happen would be for a master to have the name of the servant tattooed on them. And this is just what it's describing here. This is not a beautiful picture of devotion. This is describing a master who has a tattoo on their hands, or is it something deeper? It is something deeper. I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. This word engraved is not talking about tattooing. It's a word that describes a hammer and a chisel or a spike. It's more a masonry tool. It's more a tool of pain, not just outward adornment that tattoos are so fashionable. And when you grasp that, this is not a picture of devotion. This is a ghastly picture. This is a picture that should, you should think this is a horrible picture, but a wonderful picture at the same time. Because centuries later, there was a man called Thomas. Thomas could have written verse 14 of Isaiah 49. He felt forsaken by God. He felt forgotten by God. Jesus had died for the sins of the world. He was on this wonderful rescue mission from God. And he had died and then he had risen. God had raised him from the grave. He, he was living an ascended life and he was revealing himself to his disciples. And many, many people believed. But Thomas had a problem. He felt forgotten and he felt forsaken. And uh, he says, how can I be sure? When he heard from his friends, Jesus is not dead, he's alive. He's walking around, he's eating fish. How can I be sure that Jesus is risen? He couldn't be sure. And he wasn't sure until Jesus came to him. And he said, look at the palms of my hands. It's me. See my love for you. See what's in my hands. There are wounds. It's not a tattoo. My hands have been engraven with your name. This is not an argument to a question. This is now love in action. And that's why it's a cure, not just an answer, verse 16. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I cannot believe what this says, I cannot believe that God loves me, simply because of what I've done in the last week, let alone what I've done in my lifetime. God could never love me. Friends, Jesus would say this, <laughs> yes he can. Don't feel, verse 14, that you are forgotten or forsaken. Why could Jesus say that? Because Jesus would say, I was forsaken for you. I was forsaken for you so that you will never be forgotten, so that you will never be forsaken. Famous words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why, Daddy, have you turned your heart and affections away from me? Why am I receiving not your smile but your anger and your wrath? I was forsaken, says Jesus so that you will never get the forsakenness that we deserve. I took all of that so that now my father can look at you as the perfect mother, as the perfect lover. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're just restless. You're a restless person. You're like one of those swans. You look okay and respectable because we're in Epsom, darling, or even rugby. We look respectable on the outside. We're MNS, members of the National Trust, but beneath, beneath the surface, we are struggling. We're forgotten. We feel forsaken by God. We feel abandoned. There is this almighty gap as Christians from the truth of the gospel that we own and what's happening down in our hearts. 
Friends, this is the milk that you need. What do I mean? This morning, oh, 0600 hours, it had been a good evening, a good night, and a good morning. Kimberly woke up. She was squawking in a kind of a nice way. I think it's nice because she's my kid. But uh, she was squawking simply because she wanted milk. She wanted her stomach to be satisfied. That was all. Joe went to work and I got out of bed. Friends, this is the milk you need to settle your restlessness, your troubledness of heart. If you don't live in holy consciousness, a continual awareness that you are ever before the heart and mind of God, you're the apple of his eye because of Jesus, you will always be stealing affection and love elsewhere. You see? Because there will always be this gap. The only way to get rid of the gap, the only way for it to narrow considerably is for you to drink in the milk of the gospel afresh. If you don't, you'll take your identity from what people say about you and you'll be crushed when people malign you. You'll be crushed when people slander you. You'll lose sleep when people insult you. You'll be elated when something goes right, but you'll be destroyed when you put on a few pounds of weight because you know that people will think less of you. The gospel frees you from all of that because God says you are ever before me. I've set my affection on you because of Jesus. I've rescued you because of Jesus. And therefore I'm like a great mother. You know how great your mum is? God is like an even superior mother, even than yours. Mums will move heaven and earth. They will cancel stuff. They'll come out with their curlers on. They will do whatever is necessary to darn socks and do 10 piles of washing just so that you look right. They'll go into financial ruin, mums. They'll move heaven and earth for you. Now imagine what God would do. Because God has moved heaven and earth for you. And God has moved heaven and earth for the sake of his glory, lest we think it's all about ourselves. Friends, if you believe this, your heart will flourish. Verse 14 will be a real problem still, but the gap will be far, far smaller. Why don't you comfort your hearts this morning with these words, and even better than that, why don't you comfort one another with these words too? Let's pray. Psalm 27 says, Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will bear me up. Father, as we have spent a lot of time on this image of a mother, we recognize that some of our mums did not love us kindly. They were harsh and they were hard. Father, help us, whether it be a mother or a dad that was harsh towards us. Help us to not be limited or constrained in our identity by that experience as hard as it was. But help us please to find the reality that you bear us up, you lift us up and you give us a fresh start and you father us and mother us better than any earthly parent ever could. Uh, thank you for this wonderful truth. Thank you that our names are engraved on your hands. Thank you that your promises are huge and they involve me, they involve us. Help us to be much about your business, I pray. Amen.